This week in KMA Land, KMA Land Governors update Missouri River flood recovery. Area lawmakers appear at Shen Library event. Montgomery County supervisors receive comp board recommendations. More improvements planned for Rapp Park. And Sydney schools explore four-day school week. Plus, a KMA Land Christmas tradition continues. I'm Mike Peterson. It's been almost five years since floodwaters roared through KMA Land. Area's governors continue to work with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers on flood mitigation and recovery efforts. Nebraska Governor Jim Pillen, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds, and Missouri Governor Mike Parson held the latest in a series of Missouri River Summit meetings with Corps officials Thursday morning. Collaborative efforts began following the 2019 Missouri River flooding that devastated several communities on both sides of the river. Following the meeting, Pillen emphasized the importance of having the three states and federal agencies on the same page adding progress has been made over the last few years in recovery and prevention efforts. We're not going to tell the Corps how to do their job, but we're going to be a part of the process when there's emerging times, uh, when there's potential catastrophic times, number one. And number two, we're all going to work hard to make sure that people understand what the Corps is doing. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll be better communicators to make sure that uh, all of our citizens understand the Corps is working hard for the betterment of the people. Reynolds also noted the advocacy for the group of governors helped secure additional funding from Congress for items such as construction dollars to help address levy repairs in a more timely manner. The Iowa Republican also highlighted efforts in Iowa, including establishing the Office of Levy Safety to help implement a statewide levy improvement program. To address the inadequate levy designs, the structural performances, and the operational control, the state allocated $25 million that will be through Homeland Security Emergency and Management uh, to allocate that. We're doing a complete comprehensive study of the 900-mile levy system now, and then grants will be available to the different levy districts to get the levees where they need to be. The Missouri River saw two 100-year floods in a single decade between 2011 and 2019. Parsons says a significant step has been moving away from the 10 to 12 year studies and towards a system allowing for repairs and new construction to be completed in a timely manner. People in our states expect more than a 10 or 12 year study when you go to a disaster of floods and everything. They expect action. And one of the things that's come out of that, where we no longer have the long studies, we have what are called short studies, we're in the states now have a lot more input into it and we can get things changed. And I think Missouri has been a, an example of that. We've already had levy setbacks in less than five years without the studies that we've always had to go through before. He says those levy setbacks should adjust the river level by nearly a foot, which he feels can sometimes be the difference between breaching a levy or not. On top of ensuring adequate maintenance of the levy systems, Reynolds says the Corps is looking to make the permitting process more efficient by moving the application online for the first time. Just being able to access the information more quickly, to have it be innovative and, and have it the, the technical aspect of it, then that should also help in their response to those permit requests. So all of that, I think, starts to make a difference as they look for ways to be just more innovative, more collaborative, and just doing things different. The Corps and governors are also dealing with drought conditions, which Parsons says uh, adds another layer to managing the river, particularly the potential economic impact. we got to keep the navigations of the river open. When that river level goes down and all of a sudden you got to start worried about freezing or you start to worry about power plants, this thing just doesn't start with a flood or end with a flood. There's many things that you have to prepare for uh, as we deal with the Corps of Engineers. So it's not just a one disaster item that we're here talking about today. And I think 
All three governors emphasized the importance of continuing their collaboration with each other and the Corps into the future. Though the 2024 Iowa General Assembly is less than a month away, an issue from the 2023 session lingers. State Senator Tom Shipley and State Representatives Devin Wood and Tom Moore discussed the fallout from the educational savings account issue during Monday night's library legislative visit at Shenandoah Public Library. Lawmakers in the 2023 session approved a bill signed by Governor Kim Reynolds creating educational savings accounts, which allocate just over $7,600 per student to attend a private school. Though he voted against the bill, Morris says ESAs are here to stay, and it's up to the state to make it work. We have the funds to provide that, to give parents a choice. And, uh, you know, whether you like it or not, it's here. It's going to be here to stay, and and I think Iowans will make it work, and and I think it will will benefit the state uh, in the long run just because of what Iowans are, and that's... I guess that's kind of coming from my heart, not my head. Among other reasons, Moore expressed concerns that private schools would lose autonomy with the allocation of state funding. I don't trust state government. I'm sorry, sooner or later, it is going to become one pot of education in Iowa. Whether that's good or bad remains to be seen. Shipley has two parochial schools in his district, Clarenda Lutheran School and St. Malachy School in Creston, both of which are K-8 institutions. Surprisingly, the Nottoway Republican says the ESAs received little support from Creston residents. I hardly had anybody from Creston asking me to support that. I had several that asked me not to for that very reason. Because and I had told, I said even a couple, three years ago, I said, I'm concerned that if, if it happens, eventually the worm's going to turn and there's going to be different people in charge and they're going to insist that you do all these things. Wood says she supported the bill because of the additional 10 years of operational sharing incentives attached. The new market Republican says the sharing dollars are important to smaller districts having to do more with less. I could not confidently say that every one of my little school districts that does utilize those sharing agreements was going to survive, those public schools was going to survive without the operational sharing money continuing for that next 10 years. And in my opinion, that is being more efficient with less. That's that's two schools being able to educate children still um, while sharing positions. Lawmakers fielded questions and concerns covering a variety of issues, including school funding and open enrollment laws, nursing home patient abuse, and property tax rollbacks. They also heard a report in the state of the county's libraries. Representatives of libraries in Shenandoah, Clarenda, and Essex outlined the services provided and how each entity is rebounding from a COVID-induced decline in usage. Of the 86,855 visitors in Page County Libraries in fiscal 23, almost 46,000 reported in Shenandoah while more than 37,000 visited Clarinda. Another 3,540 visitors were recorded at Essex's library. O'Coin reported 100. Shenandoah Library Director Carrie Falk highlighted the increased number of borrow items from the four libraries and not just books. We had hundred and almost 39,000 items borrowed, and again, that's not just books. It's books, it's movies, it's board games, it's cake pans, it's uh, museum passes, all kinds of different things that we check out through the library so that people can have, you know, full experience with what they're they're seeing and doing and that is up 
8% from the previous year. So we are seeing an increase. Falk says an increasing number of patrons are visiting the libraries electronically. Page County's four libraries tallied almost 37,000 online visitors. Library officials also noted the increased participation in programs. More than 960 programs were offered with almost 18,000 attendees. Clemente Lead Library Director Andrew Hopman noted the synergy between the county's libraries on programs and other areas. We work together. We have these monthly meetings and sometimes it's like, hey, you're doing that program. I'll do something different because people are mobile and can travel. We also Zoom our programs often now that people, we've had people from across the country Zoom into a program at Clorinda or at Sham. So don't hesitate, oh, I live in Sham or I live in Clorinda, I can't use the other libraries. No, we want you to because that way we can say, hey, well, Shan has that book, but we don't, but we have these other books. State Representative Tom Moore and Devin Wood and State Senator Tom Shipley again were on hand for that event. And Shipley says he was glad to receive the reports so that area legislators can defend the need for rural libraries. The thing is that sometimes the three of us have to advocate for is the fact that our rural areas need this same kind of stuff. Because urban areas have so many more resources that we don't have out here that the libraries step up and, uh, well, not just libraries, but other entities do too. So it's important for us to defend uh, helping fund some of these things that otherwise would be, people would be very happy to say, well, they don't need libraries anymore, they got the internet. Well, no, that's not true. Page County's libraries also experienced a 32% increase in the number of hotspots checked out in the fiscal year. Montgomery County officials are exploring raises for the county's elected officials. By a 4-1 to one vote Tuesday morning, the county's Board of Supervisors received the county's Compensation Board recommendations for elected officials' salaries for next fiscal year. Supervisor Donna Robinson says the Comp Board approved its recommendation by a similar 4-1 to one vote at a recent meeting. Rather than proposing percentage increases, Robinson says the comp board suggested dollar figures. The recommendation would be for to raise the sheriff's salary by $30,000, the county attorney's salary by $25,000, the auditor's salary $12,000, recorder and treasurer $7,000 each, Supervisors $4,000 each and $1,000 for the board chair. Currently, Robinson says the supervisors rank 96th out of the state's 99 counties in terms of salaries, while the county attorney is 94th, the county auditor, recorder, and sheriff are 82nd, and the treasurer 83rd. While saying the increases may mean one less piece of equipment purchased, Robinson adds the county must prioritize its people. People are our priority, not necessarily things not necessarily pieces of equipment. If we have to give up a pickup for a department or a sheriff's car or a piece of equipment from secondary roads, a big rotor, motor grader, Truck, whatever. Supervisor Randy Cooper cast the lone dissenting vote. Cooper expressed concerns the board was creating a monster by giving one elected official raise over another. While receiving the comp board's recommendations, the supervisors stopped short of accepting them. Final action on salaries won't take place until the supervisors finalize the county's budget later this winter. Efforts to improve the Page County Park north of Shenandoah received some additional financial assistance this week. At its regular meeting Thursday evening, the county's Board of Supervisors unanimously approved a request from Page County Conservation to use $6,750 of conservation reserve funds for concrete work at Rapp Park. County Conservation Director John Schwab says the concrete should help boost the park's ADA compliance. We're putting a 
basically an ADA compliant parking pad in front of our bathroom at RAP. Uh, we spent a lot of time making that bathroom ADA compliant, but we realized people still need to go across 20 feet of uneven gravel. He adds a few different funding sources have assisted the project. Some of it's from the farm money and then all our donations and then grant funding. We, did. Um, we actually got money from the RAP Foundation for this project a couple years ago. In other business, the board also reviewed the proposed contract with Venture Architects for their architectural services on the new county jail project that's still in the office. Sydney's school district continues to explore a major change in the school schedule. Sydney school officials Monday night held the second in a series of public meetings concerning a proposed four-day school week. More than 50 people were in attendance of the meeting held at the Sydney High School Commons to hear school officials once again outline the reasons for switching to a four-day week. Sydney Elementary Principal Shannon Wheeling says the district is having difficulty filling teacher positions. At the elementary, we had four positions that were unfilled this fall. That resulted in some larger class sizes, getting creative, using other staff members who are endorsed in other areas. That obviously creates more workload for more staff members because they're wearing multiple hats. Those four openings that we had, we received zero applications. Sydney School Superintendent Tim Hood says attendees asked numerous questions. One of the questions was, how's it going to work if you're a shared staff member? Because at Sydney, we share staff members with multiple districts. That was a question. And right now, all I told the group was that I had contacted the other school district superintendents and let them know that we are considering this and that we would have to work through some of those processes to share moving forward. Other questions and concerns involved daycare, transportation, and nutrition, among others. Hud was asked whether the district would see any cost savings with a shorter school week. Some of the superintendents I've talked to said that they were able to save some money. It wasn't a, a large amount. One of the districts said they thought they saved probably $40,000. It's not necessarily a, a huge savings part because you know, running a school district, between 80 and 85% of that number is, is personnel. And you know hopefully we'll have full staff, so we won't want to save much money that way. More discussion is expected at Monday's regular Sydney school board meeting. Hood expects the board to make a decision by the time school calendars are finalized in March. The superintendent, however, stresses it's not been determined whether four-day school weeks would start in the 2024-25 school year. Glenwood officials continue to search for a new mayor. At its regular meeting Tuesday night, the Glenwood City Council unanimously set an appointment date for December 29th at 5.30 p.m. at Glenwood City Hall. Council members approved Ron Cohn's resignation as mayor late last month. Glenwood City Administrator Amber Farnan says the appointment must be made between 4 and 20 days after the official notice is published, which she plans to put in the paper December 20th. If I post the notice on the 20th, we would then have uh, until the 9th of January to make that appointment. Now we can make the appointment anytime after the 25th of December. Because we would meet that 4 and 20, not that we would meet on December 25th. So, but I'm just saying that as long as we have at least four days notice, but not more than 20. Farna notes a handful of residents already indicated interest in serving as mayor. While initially suggesting January 9th as the date, council members proposed the late December date to allow for input from council members Dan McComb and Jeremy Rodman who opted not to run for re-election last month. Council members also expressed interest in interviewing or providing a questionnaire to the candidates. Farnan says those could be conducted during the couple of days leading up to the appointment. If I got in April 20th, which I will, then we could do interviews on the 
Wednesday and Thursday, 27, 28, and we'll just have a short time frame. And if if people can't interview, then we could do a questionnaire. Please fill out this questionnaire and maybe maybe they can have a phone call with one or two of the council members. She adds incoming council members Christina Durand and Natalie McEwen could also be involved with those interview processes, which would also be during a special meeting if they wish to interview the candidates together. However, Farnan adds the public also has the opportunity to petition for a special election following the posting and also the appointment itself. The remaining defendants in a deadly fentanyl distribution network were sentenced to federal prison this week. Ethan Hewitt has more. U.S. Attorney Richard D. Westfall announced that four defendants were sentenced, including 29-year-old Christian Blaze Armin and 32-year-old Edward James Armin, both of Omaha, to 42 months for conspiracy to distribute fentanyl, 26-year-old Richard Andrew Knoll of Council Bluffs to 150 months for conspiracy to distribute fentanyl, and carrying a firearm in furtherance of a drug trafficking crime, and 30-year-old Jarek Matthew McPherson of Council Bluffs to 120 months for conspiracy to distribute Fentanyl. Well, a total of 11 defendants have been sentenced in the Southern District of Iowa in connection to the distribution network. Well, the sentences stem from an investigation that started in January 2022 after the Council Bluffs Police and Fire Departments responded to a local residence where an adult female had overdosed on fentanyl and later died. An investigation was conducted into individuals who were actively conspiring to distribute fentanyl in the Omaha and Council Bluffs Metro, ultimately identified. 21-year-old Cairo Wells and 42-year-old Jakara Baker, both of Omaha, as the primary distributors of fentanyl to other individuals. Well, authorities say the fentanyl pills distributed by the group in the Lincoln, Omaha, and Council Bluffs areas resulted in at least 11 overdoses and six deaths, with the Federal Bureau of Investigation officials stating the trafficking organization received and distributed more than 10,000 fentanyl pills every five days. On October, Wells and Baker were sentenced to 360 months and 300 months respectively for conspiracy to distribute fentanyl. Well, the Council Bluffs and Omaha Police Departments, Southwest Iowa Narcotics Enforcement Task Force, Drug Enforcement Administration, and the FBI investigated the case. A complete list of those sentenced in this case is available with this story at KMALand.com. I'm Ethan Hewitt reporting. Shenandoah School Board has a new look. One month after winning the two seats up for a vote in the November 7th general elections, Glenn Mason and Brent Twyman took their places on the Shenandoah School Board. Board Secretary Lisa Holmes administered the oath at the beginning of the new board's first meeting late Monday afternoon. Do you solemnly swear that you will support the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of the state of Iowa and that you will faithfully and impartially to the best of your ability discharge the duties of the office of board member in the Shenandoah Community School District as now or hereafter required by law? Well, Mason and Twyman succeed former board members Jeff Heiser, who finished third in last month's elections, and Benny Rogers, who opted not to run for re-election. Despite the new additions, board members opted to keep the same officers. Gene Fichter was unanimously re-elected as board president and Adam Vandervliet vice president. In other business, the board heard updates on Ignite, the district's online education program. Shenandoah K-12 Ignite director Denise Green says the program's open-enrolled students increased from 53 in August 23rd to 88 December 8th. 
Approximately 130 students are enrolled online, with 28 students in the hybrid category attending classes in person or electronically. 41 students are taking middle school or high school classes not offered in their home district. Green says 14 students are involved in work-study programs, while six have internships. She says work-study programs must meet certain requirements. Out of all the kids that I have enrolled, not one of them have the same plan, um, but... If you do a work study, you do 60 hours of work and you get one elective credit, and that's a pass-fail credit. So we work with the employer, we do job evaluations, they have to turn in a timesheet um, to get credit, and then they do a review with Mrs. Martin or myself or the two teachers of that course for the kids. Green says each Ignite program is tailor-made for the individual student. So we sit down with the, with the parents and the students and we talk about why they want to go online, why they want to be hybrid, what, what their plan, what their idea is. Um, and the kids typically come with a pretty good idea on what they want to do um, and an area they want to go into. Additionally, students may attend Tarkio Tech, Iowa Western Community College, and Southwestern Community College for certificates in specialized fields. Green says Ignite is also a dropout prevention program. We last year graduated 13 kids that probably would have dropped out. Now, those aren't all from our district. Those are from other districts. Um, that either had dropped out and they came back to finish, but with 13 of those were recovered last year as what could have been dropouts. And currently this year we have eight that are enrolled that have either dropped out somewhere or that was the path they were going down. Um, and they are all on track to graduate today. So I think that's kind of a big part of it. For example, Green cites a 21-year-old student who dropped out a few years ago only to return and earn her high school diploma through Ignite. Members of a Montgomery County family are keeping the memory of a loved one shining brightly this holiday season. For more than a half century, the Baird Christmas light display at 1233 E Avenue, northwest of Red Oak, has made a major holiday destination. It's the first year without the display's creator, Jack Baird, who died last Christmas Day at the age of 91. Jack's son, Chris, is among family members carrying on his father's light display legacy. Speaking on KMA's Morning Line program Wednesday, Chris says the decision to erect the display this year was easy. We had talked, and, and that was one thing we had promised Dad, that that would continue as long as we had help and we could keep it going. It's so important to our family and him. As in previous years, the display features a vast array of brilliantly lit buildings, vehicles, and animated characters. We've got two buildings with animated displays, a combine that my dad and I are really proud of that actually runs. We drive it in the shed, and after we're done with lights, we drive it out for the lights and put it back in each year. A 70-foot tree, numerous cutouts, a Ferris wheel, a merry-go-round, a helicopter, an 18-foot soldier. There's a nativity scene, of course, and then we have a 100-foot cross on the hillside and the majority of the buildings are lit. Though the display's components are familiar to perennial visitors, Chris says the technology connected to the lights continues to evolve. Well, with LED lighting in the last 10 years, it's just incredible. It's made our power load so much lighter. I mean, we're probably 1,000, 1,200 feet out from our main power supply on the farm on the hillside. And we wouldn't be able to do that without the LED technology where it just don't pull no load. And that's made it so we can expand out further and add more stuff. So that makes it a lot more fun for us.
more things for people to enjoy. Spectators will notice two poignant additions to this year's menagerie, memorials to not only Jack Barrett, but his son-in-law, Miles Russell, a major contributor to the display who died in May. With their losses, we did a moral tribute to them. For my dad, we did a five-point star to represent each of us five kids, and then a heart in the middle, a red heart. The star is blue as a remembrance of him and the love from us kids towards him. And then for my brother-in-law, we did a large light bulb, and we did a remembrance that way of him, of all his help and his years. Visitors can view the Baird Christmas lights every night from 5 to 10 p.m. until New Year's night. That wraps up this week in KMA Land. Listening each week at this time for This Week in KMA Land. And for more information all the time, log on to KMALand.com where you can also hear this program in its entirety. For the entire KMA News team, this is Mike Peterson. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend. This Week in KMA Land is a presentation of KMA News in Shenandoah.